ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Welcome to another edition of Hard to Paint with David Grubb, and I am back today with frequent guest and one of my favorite guests, Daniel Lust, attorney and co-host of the Conduct Detrimental Podcast. It's been a while, my friend. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good, and, and Dave, uh, you're one of my favorite sh- shows to go on and one of my favorite followers across a number of mediums. So, uh, I'm, first of all, big congrats on being back with uh, Tulane. Uh, big shout out to you. I uh, I've bet on a couple of Green Wave games in your honor. Uh, I've not always been successful, but, you know, it's for a good cause. Thanks. And you're everywhere, too, man. I see you popping up on more and more lists and, and just your following. The, the podcast is growing. Um, for all the stuff in 2020, that has to be really encouraging to see that, that's, that there's a greater interest in these issues and that you've kind of pushed forward in, the, in being a voice for them. Yeah, it's, it's very chaotic. Um, you know, I, I think even this past week, and, and we'll see if we, you know, if we have time to get into it, but um, there's a wave of litigation that's purely related to COVID. The one that uh, we spent a lot of time talking about on our podcast is that Major League Baseball suit uh, against these insurance companies. It's a $2 billion lawsuit. Um, the Atlanta Falcons, I know you have your, your, uh, your, we'll say your dual Saints-Falcons show that you guys do. Right. The Falcons have sued uh, insurers. My baseball teams have sued insurers. So um, there's that level of it. And then also, you know, the stuff that you and I are going to get into, just the crazy world that's uh, caused by, uh, you know, the chaos of games being canceled on the fly. So, yeah, it does, you know, a lot of decisions are being made by lawyers uh, from commissioners of major sports leagues. Kevin Warren, who I know will speak about, is also a lawyer. So a lot of the same, uh, you know, legal DNA is behind some of these decisions. So, yeah, I'm happy to break it down and get people of mind uh, into, uh, you know, the, the liability equation. The most pressing thing today is the announcement that Michigan has canceled the game with Ohio State due to COVID-19. Um, for Ohio State, this could be a major problem, considering that they won't meet this, unless there's an adjustment, they won't meet the six-game minimum to be eligible for the Big Ten championship game, which could cost them a spot in the college football playoff. There are a number of options that are being bandied about, whether it be waiving the five-game rule waive it, or finding a new game for Ohio State, potentially Indiana this weekend. And we know that this is about the, the money for the college football playoff. The Big Ten wants their cut of that money. Ohio State is their best chance to get three shots at that money. <laughs> you know, I mean, to get two shots at the semifinal of the finals and to get that bonus for winning the championship. Are these decisions – there are multiple questions here. Are these decisions ethical at this point to be making them at this time of the season? Are they fair, equitable to to teams like Indiana who would have to potentially pay, face a top five team again for the second time in their season when they have met their criteria to be eligible for the championship game? And then there's the timing of this that leads a lot of people who would be in positions to challenge it 
wondering what they what their action what they could do. I mean, could other conferences say, "Well, Ohio State didn't meet their own conferences criteria. Why is this possible? Why we have teams that are eligible to make the playoff? Why are we bending this structure potentially to make it easier for a team when we didn't have anything to do with their circumstances?" So it's a loaded question, and I think they truthfully that's the only way to ask it because. Um, this is a, you know, multi-million dollar decision that, that's kind of on the line here. So really um, where this story begins, this is a story, you know, maybe a couple weeks back at this point, but I, I pointed it out then. Nebraska, who, you know, Nebraska is not a team that's threatening for the college football playoff, but Nebraska um, and maybe the Big Ten uh, was not happy that they made this ask, but Nebraska had the, it was really the first school in the Big Ten to deal with it, an opponent canceling that was Wisconsin. Uh, and you know, for whatever reason, Nebraska wanted to replace the, replace the game with a non-conference opponent. Um, and that was the first ask of any school in the Big Ten Conference, basically for an exception to the rules, to ask the Big Ten, hey, let's be fluid in this situation. We found an opponent, Chattanooga, who's outside the conference. They have no positive tests. They're a fully healthy team. We'd like to play them because it's already a shortened season. and We'd like our boys to have a little bit more game experience, whatever the other reasons were. Um, so the Big Ten took a vote, uh, and I, I think the way the vote came out was essentially Nebraska voted for, obviously themselves, Ohio State voted for Nebraska, and the rest of the conference said, we don't want Nebraska to play an uh, out-of-conference out game. So at the time, Ohio State uh, noted, and Ryan Day was very adamant that they supported Nebraska because had that decision been, uh, you know, should Ohio State be allowed to play a non-conference game, uh, Ohio State was basically signaling, hey, I know we're, the vote is against Nebraska, but if this happens to us, we need some kind of consideration. So, um, you know, I, I made the, I don't know if it was a joke, just an observation. I said if Ohio State was the one that made the exact same request in week two or three of the season, whatever it was, at least in my humble opinion, Ohio State being the royalty that is the Big Ten Conference, one of the crown jewels of the conference, I think the Big Ten would have said yes, and I think they would have just been understood. Now, um, in, terms of, in terms of ethics, fairness, you know, uh, in terms of ethics, fairness, anything, any number of questions down the line, um, the, the concern is that you've basically told Nebraska, you know, not, not the team at the top of the conference, that we're not going to make rule exceptions for you. Um, and now, you know, in the seventh week of the season, right, on the, the verge of, um, you know, at a, at a time where we know who's going to probably be in the college football playoff, we know who's going to be in the Big Ten Conference, now all of a sudden you're making exceptions. So, um, I know because I see it in my replies, and I'm kind of in the middle of, of this conversation, but I, I know Nebraska fans are upset. I know Northwestern fans are upset. I know Indiana fans are upset. I know basically everyone that's not Ohio State is aggrieved that the Big Ten, and, and you and I spoke about this offline, is telegraphing that they're uh, considering and probably going to waive this five-game minimum rule. So where that leaves us today, um, you know, uh, before obviously game day, we're still midweek, um, is Ohio State going to take another game to get to six? Either they play uh, what's now a canceled game in the last couple of minutes. This uh, Purdue is canceled, so now Indiana is open. Uh, Minnesota still might cancel. That would leave Nebraska open. And then there's a world where um, if the conference doesn't want to re have rematches, they could take Maryland's game uh, with Rutgers and allow Maryland to play um, Ohio State. So there's a number of different uh, reschedule scenarios, and there's still a scenario where Ohio State basically gets to cakewalk into the Big Ten Conference title, um, and the rule there is winning percentage. So if Ohio State doesn't have to play another game, they're 5-0, and 
and six and one Indiana is sitting there, um, you know, pretty much with it, with an argument. So I don't know, Dave, I, I, you know, you asked ethics, you asked equity. Um, I don't think it's fair by any means, but if they had made these rules, right, if they got rid of the six game rule uh, in week two, right, or week three, or maybe even two weeks ago, it would be a lot harder for you and I to say they are making the exception purely, solely, explicitly because of Ohio State. Um, you and I spoke again offline. Wisconsin had an issue a couple weeks back where they were falling short of the six-game uh, requirement. If they made the rule back then, right, we're going to waive the six-game requirement. Big Ten can pretend it was about Wisconsin, and we could speculate, but, you know, right now there is no other optics that they are making this exception for Ohio State. And Dave, one, one last thing. Barry Alvarez admitted it was because of Ohio State. He was on, on, uh, on the Fox show saying, I was asked if we could make an exception for Ohio State, and we'll revisit it for Ohio State. So um, in, a, in a conference of 14 teams, the Big Ten is very close to, uh, I don't know, getting 13 of them very angry. So we'll see how this shakes out. But, uh, you know, I think you could have predicted this, that the Big Ten would mess this up in some way. Yeah, they have been so dysfunctional this year, both in their internal communications with each other and in dealing with their schools, because we haven't seen another conference where coaches and athletic directors have so been so open about their challenges to the conference and its decision-making. Um, at least you would say the SEC is in line with itself. You'd say the Pac-12 has been in line. You'd say the, the Big 12 as well. But from the start, the Big Ten has had this problem um, – does it lend itself to future challenges? Does it, does Kevin Warren put himself, how much of this is going to end up putting put at his feet, do you think? Or are there going to be investigations into how all of this was done for the Big Ten and other athletic directors, university presidents get themselves caught up in something because these dollars are going to be so vital for certain athletic programs going forward? So two points. I, I think – you know, um, when, where, where my nose started to, or my, we'll say my spider sense started to tingle was, was back uh, with the, the situation of when the Big Ten canceled their season, whether or not they filed, uh, followed their own bylaws. So at least is the sort of, you know, I don't know if there's different sources, but enough speculation out there that the Big Ten's vote didn't follow proper protocol. This 11 to 3 vote uh, didn't follow protocol. That's why Nebraska sued all this fun stuff. That challenge, um, I think if Nebraska would have pushed forward uh, with depositions and subpoenas and anything to get access to emails, uh, truthfully, and I don't really think this is much speculation, there was some smoke there, enough that um, three administrators left that vote saying either we didn't vote or we're not sure if there was a vote. Uh, and then two weeks later, Northwestern's president, who's the head of the Big Ten, um, essentially said, uh, I'm swearing under oath that 14 people knew that they voted and voted in X, Y, or Z. So, those are two inconsistent statements. I think if someone were to uh, kind of dig a little bit deeper and continue that lawsuit, uh, there could have been some jobs that were lost or maybe even um, a decision to uh, uncancel the season because you didn't follow proper protocol. So that said, um, I don't think anything they're doing now, I think they'd be crazy if they were to not follow protocol to a T. And that's maybe why they've, they're not doing anything. They're just sitting back and not changing any protocol, any procedures because of the fear of the paralysis of doing anything. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I was listening to a lot of different shows on the Carson Wentz stuff. The guy is paralyzed to throw interceptions now, and the Big Ten's almost paralyzed to do any type of decision for fear of, of more criticism. So, um, but again, you know, you're, you're a leader, right? Uh, the, the leadership, you know, and the, there's the prefix of the term leader, because you have to get out in front of these storms. You have to get out and, you know, be a little preemptive. You can't just be playing defense all the time. But 
that's kind of what's going on. So to your question about legal, uh, legal ramifications, whatnot, um, you know, the optics are there. I don't really think you could, you could miss him at this point. Barry Alvarez is the man that's been giving public statements at this point about what they're going to do. Kevin Warren is essentially, I don't, I don't want to say phased out, but he's definitely taking a back seat. He's not, not really as uh, in that driver's seat as much as you would think he would be being the commissioner. Barry Alvarez is not at the top of the totem pole by any means. It's, it's really, if there's any pecking order, it's Kevin Warren. Uh, and then it's, I think, Morton Shapiro is the Northwestern guy. So, I don't know. The, the optics are there. Um, but uh, if, if you piss off enough people, uh, you know, there could be lawsuits. There could be subpoenas. Again, these FOIL requests, which you and I have spoke about, um, that could be out there. And uh, Indiana, at least by all indications, appears to be the school that's most aggrieved. They have seven games right now. So, uh, that money, <laughs> a lion's share of it would go to Indiana. So, um, yeah, I, I think this is definitely inviting some more criticism and, uh, uh, you know, lawyers can be good, they can be bad, but sometimes they're geared at, uh, at getting some answers. So, uh, I think we're trending in that direction. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm Indiana, there's going to have to be a lot of convincing to get me to go along with this as an institution, because they don't get opportunities like this very often, even the, to be in this position and for them, this could mean, not only the revenue, but it's for an institution that's trying to continue to recruit its program and, and get people to uh, want to be involved in it, a program that never goes to major bowl games. I mean, yeah, it, it, it would be very hard. And if, if it's just a decision that gets made and they are not part of that decision, if there's not some negotiation, I just can't imagine them going down without a fight on that. Yeah, I, 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 I mean – the, the optics, and I'm, and I'm just, I don't remember the times of the games of last week, but, you know, there, there's a world where um, they're delaying these decisions, they're the Big Ten, right? They, they could have made the decision last week. Uh, and if you just, if you looked at Barry Alvarez's transcript, he didn't say we're going to make the rule change, but he went and basically stepped up on the line, showed you the line, uh, and did enough to probably piss Indiana off just with his comments that we're going to revisit this five-game rule. So, Indiana could miss out on this, uh, this the the five you know the, the Big Ten conference championship, not because of anything on the field, but because of a decision that goes in on a boardroom behind the scenes. So you know we'd be kidding ourselves to say that the uh, Big Ten is going to be represented in the college football playoff if it's not Ohio State. But um, that's really putting the decision uh, outside of the Big Ten's hands. They don't get to make the decision as to who's in the college football playoff. Um, and there is a rule. I don't know the exact language, but. Ohio State's still eligible for the college football playoff, even without the Big Ten title, but I think it's you have to be extraordinarily qualified in order to get there. So if you're the number four ranked team in the country, I don't know if that makes you extraordinarily qualified. That seems to put you on the bubble uh, at best. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's been, uh, you know, again, people are going to get pissed off no matter what, but I, I think the way that it's been handled, that you've waited until the 11th hour to make a decision, just pisses off the people that much more. If you made a decision a month ago, People would be annoyed, but at least the stink of that decision would be gone uh, by now. And, and now, you know, we're, we're days away from a major, major controversy. Their pressure is incredible, too, because you'd have to assume at this point that unless something major changes, Alabama's in. It's not, unless something major changes, Notre Dame and Clemson are both going to be in. So that leaves just one spot. And if it's not Ohio State, like you said, and you, or if there is a Big Ten championship game that does not include Ohio State – and Indiana were to say win that, and they say, well, look, we played eight games. We're seven and one in our eight games. The only loss we have is to Ohio State, and 
So why should we not be as the Big Ten champion represented in the playoff? And that's what the whole point that they say of the playoff was anyway, to ensure that champ conference champions got in. I'm worried, too, about when the playoff committee makes its recommendations that not only a school like Indiana, but these group of five schools that work their way up to these to these certain levels, and they think they'll get kicked out of, of these higher uh, tier bowl games and the money that goes along with them. I think that it's just – I don't know – when we talk about that leadership, it goes all the way back to the beginning with the NCAA from the from jump, not working with these conferences on finding some uniformity, at least some common area where they could make a minimum of games, a minimum requirement, and they did none of that. And now this chaos is ensuing. Yeah, and uh, I guess to, to put a pin in it, I mean, you and I could go on all day. It's just, yes. you know, the optics of the Nebraska decision – um, again, I, I, I have no affiliation to Nebraska. I just thought it was stupid then. And I think uh, this lovely state of Nebraska is just appreciating that someone is, is catching, is calling it. But, like, Nebraska, Nebraska was basically told, rules are rules. We made this decision to come back. There are no exceptions. It is black and white. Understood that Chattanooga is healthy and that you're healthy. But we don't want you to go beyond the scope of the rules because rules are rules. And Nebraska, back then, the, the, the country or the, we'll say, Husker Nation said, fine, but if something happens to Ohio State, you better not make an exception then. And that's exactly what's happening. So, you know, uh, I, I don't feel bad for the Big Ten. This has been predicted the entire year that this exact scenario would happen. Uh, and it looks like the Big Ten is taking the bait. Let's transition to another part of the FBS. Um, the Knight Commission, which is a group of university presidents, former athletic directors, and other members. It's a giant think tank on college athletics. And their recommendation last week was that the FBS schools need to leave the NCAA. That football on that level does not work. There's no way to make it fit in a, in a, in a positive way under the current model. Basically, they said it's a pterodactyl um, in a, uh, <laughs> that sticks out where the rest of the animals are the same. Um, this is basically something that we were kind of on anyway, that the, the evolution of this, the power five at some point would want to get out. But now with this type of recommendation with the licensing issues that are coming forward and with the money that's been lost this year due to COVID, it seems as if this is a much more viable path now for to separate the economically um, powerful schools from the ones that cannot afford to keep up in this arms race. Yeah, so, you know, if you if we weren't really paying attention behind the scenes, uh, the and Dave, you kind of alluded to it, there is no – Mark Emmert really has no jurisdiction over the football teams. You know, that's why uh, people will kind of – the beginning of, of you know, uh, of the football season, we were saying, should we play in a bubble, should we not play in a bubble? And everyone's like, where is Mark Emmert in this to unify the rules and come up – and then a lot of people learned that uh, the, the Mark Emmert has no jurisdiction over, over college football. So, um, you know, and it's highlighted, uh, I think, in this season of chaos of being probably the best example. You, you can't have a world where all these little, uh, I'll say like these little fiefdoms of like the Big Ten and like SEC, everyone has different rules, but they're competing for the same prize. So, um, you know, Big Ten, uh, sorry, the, the college football is a cash cow, college basketball is a cash cow, um, and then there's really everything else. So I, I don't have a problem with it. I think if you're just watching it from the outside, 
Uh, I mean, I, there's probably some people that have always thought that college football should be a, a separate entity. The fact that the Knight Commission is stating the obvious, I don't think is such huge news, but if the NCAA listens to it, then I think you're moving one step closer to, uh, we'll say, a version of a uh, college football commissioner that can quiet the noise, that can add some, uh, you know, some level of transparency. I, I just think, you know, and for those that aren't following the, the college football situation that closely, you have a 21-day rule in the Big Ten, which, you know, whatever side you fall on the virus, if you think it's safer to have a 21-day rule, that's fine. But it's very hard to have the SEC, which can kind of make their own decisions about safety and protocol, and the Big Ten, which has a 21-day rule. And then meanwhile, you can have something like a really fun game like BYU and Coastal Carolina can have, an out-of-conference game that they're scheduling on the fly for purposes of, you know, if BYU wins that game, they're going to leap over some teams. Maybe they get to five to four. Um, but that's a, a freedom and a flexibility that BYU has that other conferences don't have. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't. I, I think this year is absolutely chaotic. We, we've had different conversations on, on any number of shows about the asterisk level of, uh, you know, what COVID brings. I think it's more apparent in college football than it is in any other sport with these little conferences. Make, it's almost like they have the Eastern Conference in the NBA and the Western Conference in the NBA had different rules. It's like the, even, even baseball, which is so archaic, they created a universal DH because they wanted to control some level of chaos. The, for anyone not paying attention, college football is basically like on fire right now. And the, the, the college football playoff champion, if it's Alabama, if it's Clemson, you know, if it's one of the royalties, no one's going to care. But um, I, I think behind the scenes, you know, from teams, we'll say 10 through 100, there is just absolute chaos that is just being masked by the, the normal teams that are up top. But it's absolutely chaotic behind the scenes. What would be the impact for schools that say if they separated football, can you do that under the government guidelines for Title IX? Would you have to make those players employees to take them out of Title IX consideration? It's a good question. I actually haven't thought of that. I think, I'm trying to think, I mean, to, to the extent that you remove college football from the NCAA, I have to, you have to kind of put that in its sphere because Title IX is basically saying you have to reallocate the wealth so that, that you know, none of the, uh, no particular men's sport is getting an advantage over the women's sports. But if you remove college football from the equation, um, is, that, uh, is that permissible in such a way to remove the revenue uh, and all that potential funds and resources from the women's sports programs? I mean, I, I, I can't imagine – I can't imagine that that would fly under Title IX if you just were to take out all of that money. Um, but I also wouldn't – I don't think schools would necessarily be in favor of that if they were to lose all that money. I'm sure the college football coaches would be in those programs. But, um, you know, even, with, even without the reallocation of wealth, those guys have more than enough money to redo their athletic centers. Um, I don't think they need more of it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't ever see college football players necessarily being employees. Maybe that's the legal term of art. If they somehow the administrators thought it was better to have college football separate, but if you're just playing on a practical level, I don't see how schools, right. And the internal school vote, uh, similar to how we're looking at the big 10 situation, there's going to be, you know, the tennis coach and the wrestling coach and the swimming coach, all of those coaches in their collective power, if there's some form of a democracy, you think would vote that down. Uh, if it's just college football on the other end of it. But I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, uh, the, Knight, the Knight Commission obviously has no necessarily dog in the race at the particular schools. But, yeah, it's, it's definitely going to require some uh, legal adjustments. Um, 
in the NBA, James Harden is the topic du jour. And James has done some very interesting things. Um, what's funny is in New Orleans, you know, we're kind of, we, it's, it, there are some things that mirror the Anthony Davis situation, but there are things that James does that are completely, that it has done that are completely um, unusual. The fact that he's in a demand for a trade with three years remaining on his contract is unprecedented. Um, that he's trying to dictate the terms of that trade uh, are also, <laughs> is, is also extremely uh, difficult. Uh, and then the, it seems as if the, the Rockets are in the position where they don't really have an option but to cater to him because they've waffled on discipline. They say that they're going to discipline him, but they haven't really put anything in effect. No real punishment. He shows up today. He's taking his test, which means he's going to be out for a few more days. Do the, do the Rockets have – what is their, their ability within the CBA to punish James Harden? Because we kind of dealt with this with Anthony Davis where he wanted out, but he wanted to play at the same time, and the Pelicans were forced to play an asset that they wanted to move on from and protect. Um, and then also with the CBA coming up soon, it just feels like owners have another thing in their pocket to slam the players on and say, we can't have this. It's one thing for you to want to be, to go where you want to go. It's for us to shorten contract length, but it's completely another for you to ask for trades with three years left on your deal and to do it publicly. Okay. So, so here's, um, this is not a pop quiz by any means, but it just, it's fun to put in perspective. James Harden, at least per the NBA's protocol, um, they're being very clear. Obviously the NBA uh, has been very safe with this, no positive tests in the bubble. They've told all players to essentially self-quarantine before the season starts and not, not to leave their apartments or their homes unless there's some essential activities, be it dropping off your kids or going to the grocery store, um, doing, doing things that you kind of have to do as, a, as an adult. Um, Dave, does James Harden, do you think, has he done anything that objectively uh, flies in the face of that uh, protocol? Um, going to strip clubs in Atlanta and Vegas and hanging out till three, four in the morning with no mask in limos with people who are not close personal contacts or family members. Those could all be uh, considered questionable decisions. Coast to coast, he's violating the protocol and he's, and he's putting the pictures out there for everyone to see. No, and it's not only wearing a mask for safety, but maybe wearing a mask so people don't realize who you are. I mean, maybe the beard will, will probably, uh, you know, get, get around any type of identification issues. But um, he's really letting it fly in a way that's really not just disrespecting the Rockets. It's disrespecting NBA's protocol. It's put out there for a reason. So I, I was listening to, uh, I, think the, uh, I think it was the Low Post over on the ESPN podcast this morning, and they are saying that there's various sources that are basically telling Adam Silver, different teams, hey, you need to punish this situation. You need to force the Rockets to punish James Harden because this is setting a very bad precedent. What this is, in it's very clear terms, uh, there's no real way around it. It's breach of contract. He was supposed to show up on a certain day. He's supposed to abide by protocol. He has, he has an obligation as an NBA player to abide by protocol, and he's not doing it. So, um, you know, the... Uh, I don't, you know, the only reason that I could possibly have for why he's not, why the Rockets aren't punishing him is because they're hoping, right, that if they don't punish him, maybe he'll come back. Maybe he'll agree to play with John Wall and, you know, and, and uh, see if the, the, new, the new Rockets can work. If they punish him, I think that bridge is really burned and they can't really come back. So it's almost teams are basically making the request of Adam Silver to step in 
and Silver be the one to punish Harden so it kind of gets the Rockets out of the situation. But um, he's very much holding them hostage. Uh, and right now, I mean, it's kind of exploiting a hole in the CBA, right? You know, the Rockets should be the one punishing, but they're not. And maybe the Rockets are going to push back on Silver and saying, hey, don't punish him because maybe Harden's going to say that we told you to punish him. So it's, it's really a, a black eye. When a guy can be under contract, I think he's got two more years and a player option for a third year. Um, when they put, I think, a recent uh, five-year extension on the table for him, the same extension that Davis just signed, and he refused to sign it. So you have a player that's under contract that is not listening to anything the team is basically telling him to do, which uh, it's textbook. I don't want to say textbook breach of contract, but it's looking a lot like something that could be there. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a very messy situation. I think the news today is that Harden is saying uh, he'd go to Philly. You know, we know that he wants to go to Brooklyn. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel – I mean, I'm, I'm all for player empowerment. Uh, I, I am. But I, I'm, I'm not really that comfortable in a world where a player can just make the team look really stupid and force their hand. If LeBron wants to go play in Miami with Wade and Bosch, he can manipulate the system, and Kawhi can basically trick the Clippers into making a trade for Paul George. or saying, go ahead, I don't care. But if you're under contract, I mean, a contract is worth something. It can't just be ripped up willy-nilly and, and forced to trade. So – Something's got to be done. Uh, you know, I think Silver has done a little bit more uh, trying to enforce tampering, um, but there's clearly another level that was not adjusted for in, in the new CBA. And, and part of that to me is, is when you look at these things from, from the player side of it, and I understand, look, we, there are all times when we don't want to be somewhere. And we talk about – and you can say, well, it's the, you know, being traded is not a player's decision. Being cut is not a player's decision. But the NBA also – and both the NBA and MLB have no language in their CBAs that say that their contracts are guaranteed. It's just a, an agreement that they participate in and say, okay, we're paying these funds. So for James Harden, again, that's, that's why I think this has implications for the CBA is because the NBA has done this for so long. And now they're saying, look, we're paying you and you're still not wanting to show up. We're doing our part here. The conditions of the team can change at any point, but you, we're doing our obligation. It seems as if there may be a, like, if there isn't a, situ, a, um, a resolution during the season that they can come to contractually, it kind of ends up like they're headed towards a Stephon Marbury with the Knicks situation, where, yeah, you're still officially part of the team, but we're asking you never to show up again. And, and, and if it gets that way to Harden, a guy who's in his prime, an MVP candidate, that's a huge black eye for, like you said, again, for Harden, the Rockets, and the NBA, um, and Harden being one of the more pro- high, most high-profile players in the world. So here's – I mean, this is, I guess, the administrative angle, but then there's the basketball angle, So which I, I still – I don't really get it, you know, on a, on a leverage level, on a negotiation level. Harden acting like this, right, that he's – and he's never really done this in his career, at least as far as I know, acted, you know, basically just trying to force his way out. I, I think maybe Kyrie in different situations has, you know, basically forced his way out of town. Um, the Rockets have been catered to Harden, right, and they've, they've been over backwards for years. They traded for Westbrook, at, at least as has been reported at Harden's request, basically built an entire team around his skill set. So he's turning his back on that situation where they've literally bent over backwards. Now, for Harden's trade value, let's say I'm a team uh, that's pretty close, right, like the Denver Nuggets, Um, and maybe there's a conversation, maybe I'd consider trading Jamal Murray if Harden's going to put us over the top, and maybe that's – it does put them over the top. Who knows? Um, 
I'm not going to make that move now because I don't know what's going to keep Harden happy. As I think he's 31, 32 now. Uh, he's acting like this now, and that's a team that was literally custom built around him. Um, you know, and I think the other thing too, he's not. Uh, let's say, I mean, I don't want to get too political with the virus, but like he's partying without a mask clearly in violation of, and the NBA has been right pretty much the entire time with COVID protocol and what you should and what you should not do. They've been ahead of the game. He's not listening to protocol. So the guy at this point is really going, going into business for James Harden at this point. Um, so I don't think that sends a good message. I think it hurts his trade value. Um, if a team like the Sixers was maybe willing to consider parting with Ben Simmons, which then I probably wouldn't do. Um, I don't, I don't know if they would do that because Harden is basically showing, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Um, and it doesn't make a trade any easier. So, yeah, I, I don't think this helps the situation. I don't think it gets them out of town any easier. Maybe it, you know, makes the Rockets make some more phone calls. But the, the value coming back, uh, I think I'd be that much more hesitant to, to part with a, uh, a player of a Jamal Murray caliber or Ben Simmons caliber when I don't really know what James Harden is going to be. And then um, just another quick question would be, it, there are rumors that Tillman Fertitta is thinking about selling the Rockets. Harden is, Harden is certainly attached to the value of that team. If he goes, no matter who you bring in, the value of their franchise decreases. So I think the impetus for, for, for Tillman Fertitta is, I have to get, like you said, get maximize my return here. There is no way to do that when the NBA season starts in two weeks from today. Two weeks from today, there's no way that the Rockets can maximize their return. Anything that they do right now would be under the gun and completely speculative because whatever draft picks they get in return, you're getting you're speculating on what's going to happen this season, another season that could be completely chaotic um, in a number of ways. So it just – there's so much here that feels like is going to have a lasting impact on how the NBA does business um, in the years ahead. Yeah, I, I – uh... When I saw Maury make his leave, uh, make his exodus to Philadelphia, I thought it was a little strange, but, you know, Maury's a smart guy. Uh, I think he, probably being close to the situation, was one step ahead of the chaos that was impending. So if uh, Fertitta's trying to sell the team, uh, he's going to want to keep hard and happy. Um, but I think maybe the closest analogy we have of this is maybe the situation that happened with LeBron. When LeBron left the Cavs, that team lost a ton of value. Um, in, Hundreds uh, of millions of dollars. And that's it's one player. And, you know, in addition to on-court on product, um, you know, it's TV money. You know, the Rockets aren't going to be getting primetime games if it's John Wall and Christian Wood and, and P.J. Tucker. Like, it's not a playoff team. So, interesting. Yeah, I, I don't really know how they get out of it. If, and, again, I mean, you the, uh, just I was listening, you know, again, people are kind of trying to find situations where a player has demanded a trade and then you somehow were able to walk it back and then everything became better. The only one that I think is, at least that I've seen, Kobe Bryant, uh, the late great Kobe Bryant years ago, demanded a trade out of L.A. Somehow he made it work. They won a couple more titles. Um, but I, I just don't, I don't see that in the cards for Harden. I think uh, it's just a matter of when he gets dealt and how messy he's, he's going to make it. But uh, I think he's telling Rockets he's going he's gonna to report to camp soon, right? Like, I, I don't know what soon is. I don't yeah, know he got, he's taking his first test, but he still has to go to quarantine. Because, like I said, he hadn't been isolated. He hadn't done his 10-day isolation. And they have a preseason game in four days. They play on the 12th. So, it's just insane. Like, I, I don't know if he'll be – if you're Steven Silas and you're a first-year coach, and, and this is all – but, I mean, I just – walking into this, there's no way 
there's no way he was prepared for this. There's no way he takes the job if he thought that was even a possibility. Let's say, because you, you and I are both struggling Knicks fans, right? Let's say I was the Knicks. There's a lot of reports they were going to take a shot at Russell Westbrook. So taking a shot at Harden is not that far off from, from Westbrook. Let's say they were considering taking a shot at Harden for whatever reason. That's an obvious Knicks move that would never work, but, you know, whatever. Um, I, I would be mu- that much more gun-shy to make a move, seeing how malcontent Harden has become. Um, so – Whatever Harden is trying to do, I think you can make the argument that he's hurting his chances to go to a desirous situation. So, yeah, I, I don't know who's necessarily advising him, but this is not a good look, and it's not making the Rockets' hand any easier. No, it, it, at least with the Davis situation, Clutch became the villain. You know what I mean? Like, you know, the agency became the villain. And this, it's Harden. It's Harden. And, and that's, like I said, it's, I don't know how he comes back from this for his career because I don't see a situation – just frankly, where, yeah, that's going to cater to him in the same way that Houston did. And then what winning team is going – if you're going to a winning team, you're giving up way too many assets to in return because of that contract value. It's not like Anthony Davis going to the Lakers, where the Lakers were bottomed out and out of the playoffs. If you're trying to get to Brooklyn or you're trying to get to Philly – and you have to send back Ben Simmons and other things. Or if you're Brooklyn and you have to send back Karis LeVert, Jared Allen, and other things, well, you're decimating a team that's trying to make a title run because you can't win with three, with three guys. But, but in the same sense, just to add to that, you, you were banking on that player, and the, probably the closest one is the Carmelo situation. The Knicks really gave up everything. It was really just Amari, Chauncey, and, and Carmelo. But if you're doing that, you have to say that this player coming in is going to buy into our system. He's not going to be a malcontent. He's going to be a team player. That's the only way you can bring in a superstar of that magnitude. Hope it fits in your culture. Hope that's the piece that puts you over the top. But Harden is basically, you know, let's say we don't know that much about Harden. He's kind of an aloof guy. He doesn't really talk that much. He's told you he, there's a good chance he's going to be unhappy in whatever situation he's in. No matter what. Mm-hmm. No so, matter what. Yeah, I, I don't. You know, Davis, for, for better or for worse, the guy played. I remember that, you know, that shirt, like, that's all, folks. So, a little tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, he wanted to play, which is great. Harden is not telling you that. Harden's basically saying, I want out. I'm going to make your life miserable. Um, and whether he knows it or not, teams are reading that as, well, if he comes to us, he might just pull the same thing. So, why do we want to pull the trigger on him? Yep. Um, the last thing I wanted to hit on quickly, um, Minor league contraction, we saw it at the, before the baseball season started. A lot of players got uh, waived. A lot of teams got shut down. And now you're seeing more and more of that. And the Staten Island Yankees were the first, I think, to, to file suit against the big league club for failure to uh, live up to the promises, explicit promises made to their organization. Is this the first of a wave of these types of suits? And how much – strength do these teams have these minor league teams have in pursuing some type of corrective action against these big league clubs so i guess we'll, we'll take it from because uh, i'm from new york so i have been to that staten island park uh it's uh so it's not the nicest park but like it's the only single a ballpark though single a ball yeah it's the only attraction in the area so you can just imagine uh, different stores have come to that area because there's a stadium there. I have, I don't live anywhere near Staten Island. I took the ferry to get over there. It's a, it's a hassle to get over there, but once you're there, you're kind of locked into this little ecosystem over there. So there, there makes sense. Right? It's almost like a little Olympic village. There's stuff that's over there. So 
Um, at least as has been reported in this lawsuit, that the, the Yankees, the major league club, told the Staten Island Yankees that their relationship would be forever. Um, so you will invest as the owner of the Staten Island Yankees of this, you know, we'll, we'll say this Staten Island team, you're going to invest in the stadium, you're going to invest in concessions, you're going to maybe if you're uh, a savvy owner, buy into the surrounding properties, you want to, you know, double down on your assets. Um, if there was a promise that was made that we will be with you forever, you will always be a part of our franchise, we will always have a single A club in Staten Island or some team in Staten Island. Um, even if it wasn't put into writing, that's something in the law called detrimental reliance. You've relied on someone's promise and you've acted to your detriment because of it. So um, that seems to, to kind of be what's occurring here, that there was a breach of some type of agreement that was made, whether it was made orally, doesn't necessarily have to be in writing, but a promise or an assurance that was made. And I think the way they phrased this lawsuit, repeated assurances that were made by the big league club to the, to the single A club. Um, now, I know I kind of alluded to it up top, Dave, $1.6 billion that were lost across, uh, it's 1.6 plus, I think that was just in the, between tickets, between merchandise, between uh, game revenue, uh, you know, even physical damage, you know, to the, to the actual stadium. Um, that's all part and parcel of this decision. You don't have all these minor league teams being contracted if you don't lose that much revenue. So teams are really trying to get lean and mean. You don't need eight minor league affiliates. Maybe you just need one single A, one double A, one triple A, maybe one rookie ball. Um, it's all related. So I, I think, um, you know, these uh, just, I guess you play it out. If you're no longer the Staten Island Yankees, right, you're the Staten Island something, right? Well, let's pretend you're the Staten Island uh, baseballs, whatever, Staten Island baseballs, right? Not only are you not part of the Yankees, right? Not only are you not getting the constant stream of top level uh, prospects that came through. I know there's a story years ago, I went to that stadium that Andrew Benintendi hit a ball into the water, like, uh, like AT&T Park, they have their own water there. Um, so you have attractions that come, right? Um, not only do you not have those top level players, you're no longer in the major league baseball stratosphere. So you move to some form of independent ball. So the whole quality is that much uh, torn down. So if you're worried about fans returning to the same level of normalcy pre-COVID, okay, that, maybe that's a concern. You're now no longer going to get the same quality of a team. You're in an independent league. So, yeah, there's certainly damages there. I think there would be some level of contractual reliance. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what was said between the Yankees and the Staten Island Yankees, but I, I definitely see that there being legs to this lawsuit. And I think if you're the Yankees, you, you try it out in court because, I mean, those guys are losing as much money um, as it is. So maybe it's almost necessity that they are trimming the fat on some of these teams. So, yeah, I think it's a fascinating lawsuit to watch. And to your point, I think the first of many that we'll see. Yeah, some of the brand management is going to be such a bigger part of this because, like I said, when you are the Staten Island Yankees, that merchandising alone, that, that proximity uh, to being the big league team, um, and there's so few of them that are actually named after the big club, um, and, and I think those things do impact it as well. Like you said, you can't – you become an independent franchise and you're not selling the same merchandise. You don't have those – you don't have a minor league jersey for a guy who goes up to the bigs and you can show up and say, yeah, this, this guy's now the second baseman for the Yankees and we're selling this as, you know, as, as a novelty. So, those, yeah, there's just so much that we don't even know the long-term impact that a lot of these things are going to go, not just in sports, but two, three, four years from now the COVID impact will, I mean, decades, we'll still be dealing with the COVID impact financially. Yeah, I mean, the other part, just to give you what the Yankees uh, defense would be or any big league team or any, you know, any type of affiliate, 
um, you know, we'll have to see the contracts and language. And, and Dave, you know, I, I make this joke a lot on Twitter, but it's almost the assumption of the risk. We built the stadium. We know we, you know, the, you guys built the stadium, but we as the Yankees said we'll partner up with you. It's by no means necessarily a full risk. And even if we might say, hey, our relationship's going to be forever, the way the business works, like, that's just not how it's done. There are no relationships. So you got to know that no matter what somebody might have told you in sales or promotion, uh, that that's not really uh, something you could have bought into. So there is a form of detrimental reliance, but that reliance has to be based on a reasonable belief. And you and I are sitting here. Let's say that, you know, uh, Randy Levine told the Staten Island Yankees, you're going to be our partner forever. I know that doesn't mean forever. You know it doesn't mean forever. And you and I are both reasonable people that would be on a jury at some point in time. They're not going to buy that. So um, could I see a lawsuit? More lawsuits? Sure. Um, but equally, you know, the Yankees don't make these decisions, uh, you know, for no reason. And they're going to have some lawyers that need to. Um, I know you got something coming up soon, so I do want to let you go. But please uh, let me know what you're working on. Let the folks know what you're working on and, and where they can catch you coming up soon. Cool. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on uh, social media, on Twitter and Instagram at Sports Law Loss. We have a show, a uh, podcast called Conduct Detrimental, where we, you know, it's me and my, another lawyer, Dan Wallach. Uh, and we just talk about all the legal side of sports. So this past week, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, this major league baseball lawsuit. Uh, Dave, we didn't talk about it today, but the updates in the Zion Williamson case, which I know is yeah. near and dear to New Orleans. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, again, we talked at the top, just uh, the world of sports law continues to grow. And, uh, you know, the more lawyers that are out there, like Kevin Warren making stupid decisions, the more fodder we have for our podcast. So it's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, I continue to check yours out and, and I'm a subscriber. So I, I tell everybody, you know, please subscribe. And I, I definitely, you know, we retweet each other. I, I, I try to refer people to you as much as I can because you are a great follow. And it's, it's a combination of being accessible, being humorous, but also being factual. Um, so it's, it's not like doing homework, but you are learning something. And I think fans, you know, we, we all don't have the terminology but you do a great job of breaking it down. And, and I really appreciate that. Appreciate that. And I think my audience does as well. Um, and, you know, it's always good, Dave. You're, I know you're a fan of old school wrestling. If you can throw in a wrestling gif once in a while, I feel like, I feel like that's where all of the worlds collide. It's all in wrestling. Look, yes, yes. I, the Macho Man and, and uh, you know, Hogan when I loved that one. And then, you know, just 80s wrestling is the peak. 80s wrestling is the peak. The, the the showmanship is better. It's so cartoonish. It's so outlandish. It's, it was the peak. Everything Dave, had to be bigger. I'm going to give you one nugget. So uh, you know, obviously we got to talk sports, we talk law, but I got to give you one nugget if you if you're feeling like '80s wrestling or maybe '90s wrestling was, was the peak. Um, are you familiar with the NWO? Oh, of course. So the NWO was essentially a storyline where you know from the inside the WCW was being torn apart. You know, it was Hogan, it was Nash, Scott Hall. Um, the WWF for years has had no competitor for uh, last 20 years, have no competitor. They're just their own behemoth and they're, they're blowing up. What we saw this past week, uh, it's very interesting. I haven't spoken about it online because it has nothing to do with sports and law, but I know you're into it. Um, AEW, which is a company founded by Tony Khan. It's the, uh, the son of the Jaguars owner, basically combined forces with Chris Jericho. Uh, a number of people has a lot of money behind the operation. They've essentially created a world at AEW where all of the secondary promotions, be it Impact, be it Ring of Honor, be it the NWA, they're doing a version of the NWO, but they're competing against themselves. So the first time in 20 years, you're having a competitor to WWE, 
but it's not one competitor. It's all of the competitors joining forces and having cross show promotion. So, um, you know, if anyone's feeling the itch, which I know I've gotten back in nostalgia during COVID, uh, this is an interesting time to get back into wrestling. There is a multiple challengers to the WWE throne very, uh, very quickly all of a sudden. Because that was the thing in the 80s. You had the NWA, you had so many different wrestling alliances, the AWA, all those, and the WWF at the time just swallowed them up and just ate them, took all their stars and crushed them. And of course, at the time when the WCW, that was a TV financed thing. It was not its own institution. It was developed by Turner specifically for TV. Now, I think that's what this post-COVID environment is going to look like in a lot of ways of people doing these more regional things and using them as counter-programming to these larger leagues and, and larger enterprises that may have greater challenges in performing on a consistent basis because they are so big. But if you're regional, like you said, can you control yourself a bit more and control your costs and do these cross-promotions to help each other? I think we'll see a lot of that in sports going forward because the money is not the same. It's not going to look the same. The, the, the share of owners, the people who can afford to buy teams is only going to get smaller um, at that level, the billionaire, multi-billionaire level where you can afford to take the hits that owners took this year. So I think it, the regionality of it is something that I welcome. Uh, definitely very interesting to watch, you know, as a longtime WWE stockholder, you got to pay attention to the competition. You know, if WWE's not in trouble, you got you to pay attention to the market. But it's counter-programming, and that's what you want to be. You want to be an alternative. You're not going straight up against the WWE. And we talked about that with the, the XFL. It's like, if you want to go straight up against the NFL, you'll lose. If you want to go straight up against the NBA, you'll lose. Create something different, do it in a different way, and attract a different base that wants something other than the WWE. That doesn't mean that they'll stop watching the other thing, but they'll watch you too, and that's what you're trying to build. That analysis right there, Dave, is what got you rehired for Tulane, is going to take you to the top. And I'm, I'm here and loving watching uh, your ascent uh, in uh, the New Orleans sports scene. Man, I appreciate you so much. And um, if I don't get to talk to you before the holidays in person, let me just say happy holidays to you and the fam. Um, and that daughter of yours continues to grow up really quickly. She hasn't been around that long, but she's growing fast. She is. And uh, the best to you and your family, Dave, as well. All right, my friend. We'll talk soon. Got it. Uh, for Dan Lust, I am David Grubb, and this has been another edition of Hard to Paint. Hard to paint.